0: Before we dive into episode 50, I've just got some announcements. It's absolutely wild that we've made it to 50 episodes, halfway to 100. Thank you all so much for your listens and your support. This has been an incredible journey, and there's still a long road ahead of us. It's pretty convenient, too, that this month also marks the two-year anniversary of the show. 50 episodes, two years. All I can say is, wow. Thank you so much. To celebrate the two years, we've got some merch designs on the way. The design isn't related to our current book, but in a callback to a truly iconic moment from Master and Apprentice last season, we will have new merch of Obi-Wan Kenobi with his orange lightsaber. The designs are actually finished, but I'm still waiting on some samples of the merch to make sure everything is totally set. So I'll keep you all posted on that front. You can expect Young Wan with his orange lightsaber on three different backdrops of blue, red, and green. I'm super excited for these to go live, and a big thank you to digital artist Luno Spree for bringing these ideas to life. Speaking of thank yous, I'm so grateful for our patrons who support this show. It's been a year now since the Patreon went live, and I'm so thankful for each of you for choosing to support Outer Rim Reads. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to our patron at the Lethal tier, Simon. If anyone wants to join our patron family and get access to our Discord server, exclusive merch, a bonus monthly show, and more, you can do so at patreon.com slash outer reads. Now, let's get into episode 50, covering chapters 25 through 27 of Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 50 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we will be discussing chapters twenty-five through twenty-seven of Light of the Jedi, and I'm joined by one of my good friends and a familiar face to the show, John Reimer. John, how's it going, man?
1: Hey Andrew. Uh congrats on the 50. That's a huge milestone. Well done to you, sir.
0: <laughs> Thank you, John. I, I should, in the in the spirit of congratulations, I should also say congrats to you for getting married recently. <laughs> so we both got exciting things happening. Both are uh, hopefully, hopefully a once in a lifetime, you know, experience. Fifty episodes, getting married. It's great. It's it's the same tier.
1: Yeah, they each only happen once. That's right.
0: Yes. <laughs> No, it's uh, it's really wild to uh, to think. I think uh, what off air we had Googled that this is the what the, the semi centennial episode of uh...
1: that's what I thought the word was. Um, and I wanted to make sure, you know, in the spirit of diligence, and, and it seems like that's the right word to apply here. Semi
0: centennial the semi-centennial episode of Outer Rim Reads. And there is no one else who I'd want to be sharing this episode with. You know, you've been on in at least an episode every season, as well as some bonus episodes uh, for, for our patrons. But, you know, this is... Uh, I think we're on the same boat in this book, which is with for the format of the show for this season, because uh, I think in the past you have held back to to only read uh, as far as we recorded in the episodes that you came on for. And that's exactly what I've been doing for this season. So unless I'm mistaken, I think that I know only as much as you do as well. So we are on level footing.
1: Yeah. And and all I have to say to that is, um, uh, how does it feel? <laughs> because in the past, you had asked me to not read beforehand. And I think you had relished in the fact that you knew far more about what was going to happen than me and i was just a little punk you know wondering if dooku was behind it all in master and apprentice i think was my 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 claim that had no ground as it turns out
0: that was your prediction and that is one of my favorite predictions uh that i've had on this show i don't know if there really have been many but i remember hearing that and i was like oh like I love that prediction so much, but also you're so wrong. But I can't tell you that. <laughs> and I mean, you know, so you and I
1: will be stumbling around in the dark together here on this episode.
0: Yes, you are not alone. This is, you know, I've been I've been in your shoes for the entire season. I will say it is kind of fun just to to not know what will happen, you know, and that's part of why I have historically asked you to not read past what we cover is because it's just fun hearing predictions like that. So I'm excited to be you know, on the same level as you are. I don't know if there's really much room for prediction uh, in the chapters that we have today, but they are still good ones. But before we even get to the chapters at hand, I mean, you've already been on the show multiple times. The listeners have probably already know your Star Wars background as well as I do. But uh, in, in the spirit of this season... Uh, how did you come across Light of the Jedi? And can you talk a little bit about your experience so far with this book?
1: Yeah, totally. I came across Light of the Jedi because you had recommended it to me and, and said that this was your next season and, and you had decided to bring me back. We all make mistakes. But, you know, here we are. Um, but I've I've been loving the read so far. Uh, uh, this is this goes back to something you and i were just chatting about off air but the fact that it's a a hard reset on the star wars story and to see so much commitment by the by the creative team at, at disney to to commit to this era that is completely untethered to the you know the skywalker saga i'm looking i'm looking at the the calendar in the bottom of my screen here and and see that it's 2022 which will be 45 years since the original star wars movie premiered this year which is really exciting but to think that in 45 years the films at least had only explored what like 80 years worth of story at some point they were really due for an overhaul and so i'm hoping that the movies will follow the books into this uncharted territory but yeah super excited to be jumping into the unfamiliar in terms of star Wars.
0: I wonder if there will be kind of any, any content released in this era that is, uh, with, with visual media, like movies or shows, you know, I I know it at least was initially marketed and, and kind of, uh, initially driven as a literary initiative, but I do hope that there is some kind of life that's brought to the High Republic that will be on screen, because I think at least just even from the chapters that I've read in the first book of the new era alone, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and that still continues through the chapters that we've got today. We're back to covering three chapters in this episode. There have been a a couple of longer ones, so the previous episodes have only been a couple, but we're back to three. Uh, but how about I give my summary for chapter 25, and then we can talk about the situation on Elfrona. Take it away. On Elfrona, Bell, Loden, Ember, Indira, and Porter hurry to the Blythe's homestead in a vanguard transport. A sense of urgency is high, as Loden remarks about what the Nihil are known for—thieving, destruction, and deadly gas attacks— the Jedi notice a plume of smoke on the horizon, and they quicken their pace. Indira chooses to scout the surrounding area on a veil speeder, leaving the others to investigate the homestead. Upon arrival, Bell senses only emptiness, as the Blythes are nowhere to be seen. While investigating the wreckage, the Jedi are attacked by mole mines. Bell and Loden deal with their mines quickly, but are transfixed by the blade work on display by Porter. However, one of the mines destroys their vanguard transport while Bell and Loden are distracted. Porter determines the Nihil made off with the Blythes on stolen mounts, and the Jedi set off in hot pursuit. You know, we're kind of back into the action. I think the previous chapters have been like a lot of uh, very plot-heavy, a lot of plot development kind of, you know, setting the larger stage for the book, and now we're kind of back into... A little bit of a quicker pace with these chapters, but what what did you think about chapter 25 and the Jedi kind of arriving to the Blythe's homestead and and everything that transpired there?
1: To your point that you were just kind of circling there about how the past two chapters, past couple of chapters, it's been a while since we've been back on this planet. The way that Charles Soule has, has structured this book is really, really gripping. It makes you want to keep turning the page and is definitely a a credit to him here obviously the pace is far less frenetic than the first uh, 20 chapters or 18 chapters were the whole first part of the first emergence but even still these these chapters have all been continued cross-cutting of chapter 23 is a completely different place in characters and story than chapter 24 then chapter 25 then 26 and that just has really kept and, and driven my attention But even throughout, he's been able to maintain this incredible sense of momentum and it feels like racing against the clock in every single chapter, even the ones that aren't as action heavy as this one. So there's the larger race against the clock of the plot of the Jedi trying to uncover what we as the readers know about the Nihil and and try to figure out what their, I don't know what their plans are. But then within each chapter, there feels like a very small race against the clock and in this one, it's the race to find the family that's been captured before the Nihil can do who knows what to them.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's, a, you know, ticking time bombs within ticking time bombs. This is like some Inception-style stuff from from Charles Soule, uh, you know, kind of this, the stories within the stories. And, you know, that that is true, though, you know, because with the you know, even like a book like Master and Apprentice, it was relatively like, you know, one chapter would probably lead right into what happens directly next with the same characters. But here it's, you know, jumping around to like different planets and different locations, like the the stage, the scale is much larger, understandably, but that does kind of keep you hooked because like, you know, I want to find out what happens here, um, as well as, you know, with the, with the different characters and locations involved in the story, but that does mean you know that you have to like it, it hooks you in to stick around for when you return to kind of the payoff so we're in somewhat of a lucky situation with this episode that you know chapter 27 is connected to 25 but either way we are back on Elfrona they are riding in this vanguard transport which they also refer to as a v-wheel uh, which kind of reminded me as like a Hot Wheel. But, uh, you know, they're they're riding in their V-wheel. Um, yeah, I think I prefer Vanguard. But there is an important note here that they're currently riding on the ground because this it can use either wheels or tracks. It has a repulsor lift. It's pretty much like an all-purpose, all-terrain vehicle, except I think amphibious. It can't do water. But an important note here is that it can't fly, but that's kind of okay because Elfrona has strong magnetic fields that make certain regions just like this one totally unable to fly through so that'll be kind of we'll put a pin in that because that is very important to the Nihil and what they are doing I appreciated like with the with the V wheels uh how they have kind of the same Jedi-specific characteristics like the vectors do, like the lightsaber key for the weapon systems, and, you know, most of the controls were mechanical rather than electronic in case of, like, emergencies where they can just use the Force to, you know, activate something or open something rather than electronics. And throughout the book, there's been kind of, like, this very distinct contrast between, of the Jedi and their technology now compared to what we see, like, for example, in the Clone Wars. But, like, how different is this, like, from, like, the Clone Wars material that the Jedi use? Like, I feel like it would make sense, you know, to only have to rely on the Force in emergencies. Like, what if your computers are fried, you know? Like, what what then? And it, it seems like, again, the Jedi kind of straying away from their foundations through the Force, like, later on. What did you think about about that
1: yeah that's a that's a really interesting point in terms of how does the technology that they use kind of characterize them because what earlier parts of this book made it feel like was that the jedi were very locked in with the republic right like we are we are, we are all the republic was the phrase that like jedi and and non-jedi would say to each other sort of during the big first emergence and it was like a cooperative team effort they all arrived on the sh- the same spaceship together but at the same time to your point the jedi right now have technology that only they can use and so in a way that feels like they're keeping some of their their resources or their technological capabilities out of the hands of the republic you know it's it's almost like withholding some kind of part of themselves and so the fact that that's not around in the the era that we're more familiar with in the in the prequel era i don't know if at some point maybe the the republic leadership mandated that the jedi not have their own separate technology mm. and and not have things like the vanguards or the vectors that only they could use And if that's one of these small little stepping stones towards Palpatine, rising, and then essentially using the Republic to wipe the Jedi out.
0: That's very interesting. And I love that connection that you just made there with being able to more easily wipe the Jedi out, because if, you know, if there aren't kind of those safeguards that like only the Jedi can use you know if if they are kind of in the same boat you know just like i'm on the same boat as you in this episode like if the jedi are then on the same kind of playing field as the very same troops that are going to eventually you know exterminate them that makes things only easier for palpatine and his uh and his evil plans that's i i hadn't thought about that and and, and i love that point where yeah, I, if something changes as far as like mandate goes, I mean, we know that Palpatine was kind of in the driving seat more or less of like, you know, the the formation of the clone army. So that pretty, pretty much according to design, I don't think like something like Order 66 might have been able to happen as effectively, you know, here where kind of the Jedi have their own specialized arsenal of, you know, vehicles and speeders and weaponry and equipment and all that compared to in the prequels. That's a that's a really great point. I love that a lot. And uh, they they do see kind of like the plume of smoke on the horizon. Indira had been driving the Vanguard to that point. Uh, Belle had noted that she was driving particularly fast. She was a fast driver, you know, Autobahn-type speeds going on and you know she decides to take one of the speeders to scout ahead and Loden takes the controls and i love that that note here that quote the vanguard slowed when Loden took over for Indira cuz she was just like flying at at a at a pace and then Loden kind of just like rears things back a little bit and as she makes her way back to, you know, to the, through the passenger compartment, she walks past Porter Engel, and Bell notices that he's been sitting kind of in silence this whole time, staring, you know, into the abyss, staring at nothing. And I'm just going to read this this passage here. Outwardly, the Ikruki was calm, speaking of Porter, but Bell sensed roiling energy in the man. Porter Engel, the kindly cook, inventor of ingenious dishes and dispenser of useful aphorisms, was being set aside. What appeared in his place felt like a dormant volcano beginning to wake, simmering and ready, filled with unimaginable power. The ancient Jedi was summoning up a ghost, one of his former lives. A version of himself the Padawans told stories about. Someone the sort of people who attacked defenseless settler families should pray they never met. And, you know, I I guess just like, what a description, you know, this is, he's being described as like, literally this living legend there. I don't know, I was blown away by that. Like, there's a lot of hype that's built up around Porter in this chapter. And we will see some of it, you know, come to fruition here. But I don't know, like, after reading that, I was like, I'm, I was very excited to see what was going to happen with Porter.
1: Yeah, I'm loving that you picked up on this character, because I was, I was really interested in him as well. Andrew, so... Real quick, Porter Angle kind of fits into an archetype that harkens back to Star Wars's roots. Not just if you're thinking of, like, Ben Kenobi, he used to be Obi-Wan. But when you consider the original movie, that film really has its roots in a couple of places. But two of them are Western movies and Japanese samurai movies. Like George Lucas has said that one of his favorite films ever is The Seven Samurai. And that movie is amazing. And also, as a side note, Western films after samurai films all have their roots in those samurai films. So just that's a little nugget for you, uh, free of charge. But when you think about an archetype in a Western movie of somebody who used to be an insane, badass gunslinger and is now forced out of retirement because of escalating violence on the frontier, that is Porter Angle. And so that exists in these samurai films, and it exists in Western films, and and is just an archetype that I love. However, if I can make a little prediction, is that Porter Angle's a goner?
0: Uh, I'm in the same boat there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) These, these guys who come out of retirement because of a new wave of violence in their world in these Western or samurai films are either the only survivor, or... They don't make it, mm. so I'm I'm calling it now. I, I think Porter's gone for it. You
0: know, if in in the spirit of predictions, which you know, again, I know we we know as much as each other do. Nothing more than these chapters. I think that was also one of my predictions. You know, the, like there's a lot of hype around his skills, and you know, a lot of buildup. Again, there's some other passages here in the chapter, but I think you know we'll see kind of the brilliance on display, like outside of this chapter, like we'll see some more. But I think. I would agree with you that I don't think he's going to last. It it, it hurts me to say, because, you know, legendary warrior, legendary what nine eggs, you know, nine eggs stew, like he, he seems like such a great, fascinating character. But I think as far as the characters in this chapter, in this kind of subplot of the book go, I have predicted porter angle and also unfortunately loden um i don't think he's gonna make it uh you know those are those are my two that i'm gonna predict to go in the spirit of predictions i i think i mentioned it earlier in the season like i think loden's almost like too cool to be kept around like you know i think it would kind of spur bell forward too if like you know because he's had to rely on loden a lot to push him uh sometimes literally off a cliff but you know, what happens when you remove that and he has to kind of figure things out on his own. So I think that is also another prediction of mine. I think Porter and Loden are not going to make it to the, the end in the spirit of predictions, but you now have opened that door.
1: Yeah, I hadn't even called a shot one way or the other on Loden. But just, yeah, because I had immediately attached Porter to that kind of archetype I was describing, that's how that character usually ends up. So that's why I was calling that shot for, for Porter.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. Either they are the only survivor or they kind of go out heroically after, you know, putting the, the, the old boots back on to, to do what they have to do. Um, and, you know, I, I would miss him if that happens, but at least for now. He is only kicking ass in this chapter. So, you know, Indira does take one of the two Veil speeders from the rack. The uh, bell notes that they are made by the same company who made the Vanguard, this Valkyrie Enterprises, which is the company that builds the equipment specifically for the order that's designed for Force users. And, you know, we had already touched on that because I'm, I'm wondering like, okay, so what happens to this entire company? You know, are they just like dissolved by... You know, if it's by mandate or does something else happen there, because they know what they're doing, making all of this equipment specifically for the Jedi and why this never comes up again. Even if it's not Valkyrie, you know, why does that kind of idea never come up again, especially in a galaxy at war? You know, like the Clone Wars, like that that would be the time more than ever to have all of this specialized equipment. But alas, it is not the case I did think it was cool that the Veil Speeders are described as, like, basically having zero accessories, like, aside from, like, four wing-like attachments and a repulsor lift, but that they're fast and maneuverable, and it's an absolutely kind of, like, awesome scene where she tells Belle to be careful and then jumps out the back of the V wheel, the, the wings open, they catch in the wind, and then she's off. And it's like, that's one of those moments, you know, you you do a lot of writing and, and viewing of like movies and films, like this is like something in the book that I can see like visually like happen on like, as if it were on a screen in front of me. It's like a very cinematic little scene there that I appreciated. Uh, maybe you did as well. But.
1: Oh, absolutely. So much of Charles's writing in this book has been so cinematic he devotes a lot of time to describing like the Vanguard to describing vehicles. I think because he really wants you to see it in your mind. Um, not because it's, it's, it's worth knowing for something. And maybe that, that comes up later in the book. I mean, we shouldn't speak too soon. You know, maybe the fact that only a force user can use one of these ends up mattering later in the story. We don't know anything. Um, but I think even with the, the, concept i was speaking of earlier these these cross-cutting chapters like that's a very cinematic technique like you said to to increase momentum um in the plot so yeah his his writing is is deeply cinematic and i i've been eating it up yeah
0: <laughs> same just like a not just like a good nine eggs do <laughs> when they arrive to the homestead again they they see no one there and you know, as they begin to investigate, Bell sees Porter with his hand on his lightsaber hilt, and he and Bell thinks like, "I've never seen him draw it ever." You know, and again, there's just like a lot of build up to the moment when he does. Kind of like little sentences there where it's like, "Huh, he's had his hand on his saber the whole time. I've never seen him use it." So what happens when he actually does? Uh, they do pass a few kind of terrified animals uh, called steelies, and Porter uses the Force to calm them. And uh, Loden is noting the Nihil's wrecked speeder, the bodies there too, like the destroyed droids that Erica Blythe used to defend them. And Porter calls out, quote, the Nihil took some of the family's steelies when they lost their speeder. I can see the whole story right here in the dirt. Six people, four captives. And I immediately thought to like Aragorn in the Two Towers. When... Of course you did.
1: <laughs> of course you did. I know, I know my out audience, LA, man. Here and one over there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I knew you'd appreciate that. That's immediately what I thought too. (laughs) That's not the only Lord of the Rings thought that I had from this episode, but I immediately thought, like, that's some Aragorn type stuff right there. And John probably thought it as well. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Bell does notice something marked on the Blythe's door that looks like a jagged lightning strikes, but I guess I'm assuming that to be the uh, the Nihil's symbol from from what I've seen. But as he goes to inspect it, Ember barks out a warning, and that's when Bell turns to see these four trails of dirt moving towards him at high speed, and these are the mole mines. And just kind of context about what they are, they're apparently designed to kind of speed towards their target, like just beneath the dirt and then spring up and explode, kind of sending out flames, shrapnel, heat. And I think what happens here with how Bell responds, I was just kind of blown away by because, you know, we've seen him, I don't know, be like a passenger compared to Loden, but usually Loden has kind of done the heavy lifting where Bell has kind of, you know, accompanied Loden in those moments, but here Bell acts first. He pushes Ember with the force out of harm's way because we got to save the dog. You know, Bell has his head in the right space, you know, thumbs up for Bell. And then he jumps straight up in the air, drawing his lightsaber. And two of the mines they pop up and explode as he's in the air. Uh, and But the other two kind of stay put because they're just like, okay, where's the person that we just sensed? You know, so they, they haven't triggered yet. And when Bell lands, he stabs one of them, you know, he stabs his saber into the ground. And then where the other mine was, it kind of pops up to explode. But then he slices that in half before it can do so. And again, like as far as cinematic, like I can see that happening in front of me. It was just an awesome moment from Bell. And I could only think that Loden would be proud if he had time to focus on what Bell was doing there because he's also doing his own thing. But it was just a great moment and quick thinking from from Bell, which I loved.
1: Yeah, and I mean, to this point in the story, I guess after the, the first emergence stuff, the whole thing with the cliff was to test his reflexes. Can he reach out with the force in enough time to stop himself from hitting the ground? And he couldn't really in the you know, environment when they're around their camp and hanging out. But in this moment, when it mattered, he could. He was able to save the dog, like you said, critical, and also disarm and destroy four of these mines in what I assume to be like two
0: seconds. In a matter of seconds, which is, you know, quick reflexes, exactly like, you know, this is, you know, we can see him kind of growing into his own uh, in these moments, you know, kind of acting quick, No room to doubt himself because, he, you know, it's a life or death situation. So, you know, he he did what he had to do, and it was a good spectacle. He does notice that uh, Loden and Porter are also dealing with mines of their own. Loden is apparently yanking them out of the ground with the Force and kind of sending them into the air kind of over the surrounding flats to explode. And then Porter is kind of doing the same thing that Bell did to the last one. He sliced it in half before it could explode. But apparently that was still like a difficult timing maneuver for Bell. But here Porter is doing the same thing with each of the mines that's popping up around him using a reverse grip as well. And it's just, uh, you know, Loden and Bell like literally stand transfixed by what, like, kind of like this display that Porter is putting on, which is cool and all. But then a mole mine like just goes under their vanguard and blew it to smithereens so you know it's kind of a bittersweet like the moment that we get to see porter using his lightsaber in this magisterial way it's almost like it was almost too good you know he like transfixed those around him and then they lost their transport but it was still it was still cool to see him kind of using the reverse grip kind of just going back and forth back and forth in this you know very difficult maneuver for bell but it's you know a cakewalk for for porter engel finally using the blade
1: yeah and i think i had to read sort of that description twice because the first time i read it it didn't this is gonna sound terrible didn't sound all that impressive to me like it just i kind of pictured him standing still and just kind of swinging his lightsaber like from side to side to side and i'm sure we're talking about very high speeds and very complicated angles you know But just the way the two of them are staring at him makes it seem like he's just discovered, like, plutonium. And on my first reading, this seemed like a pretty simple move, so I I don't know. But, yeah, reading into it a bit more and and thinking about it a bit deeper makes it sound like it was very difficult moves that he was pulling off with a lot of grace. But, yes, Andrew, they, they sure did get a little too caught up in the moment and then there vehicle got blown up and then it
0: got blown up yeah i think i do ha- i think i noticed on my second read through that bell noticed like hey that maneuver was pretty difficult for me so seeing him kind of do it over and over again because i think the first time i read through is like oh, you know okay it's it's cool but like not really the the why blade are they work staring that at I... him like this
1: is the yeah. most <laughs> amazing thing that they've ever seen sliced <laughs> yeah. bread
0: what like <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i do think that we will see him in action against uh, the Nihil in a kind of a greater capacity. So I think this is just a taste for what's to come. Porter does suspect that the Nihil, you know, because of the strong magnetic fields, like they couldn't have flown in and probably parked their ship over kind of near the transit zones. And so they have a chance to catch up and load in calls Indira to let them know that, okay, we're going to chase after them on kind of the remaining steelies here. You know, you should go back and get our vector in case we need to follow them off-world. But the chapter ends as they mount the steelies and they connect with them through the force, which is important, and Bell reaches out and senses the emotions of the Nihil and the Blythes that are not too far away. Quote, they had a chance. That way, he said, pointing, They went. And I just wrote in my margins, like, let's hunt some orc, baby. Like, this is where the chase is on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was, um, that's good. I was I was thinking more of a back to Western movies. This is, part of this is, is like the plot of the movie, The Searchers, in which a family gets, most of them get killed, but some of them get taken hostage by a tribe of Native Americans. And so, you know, mount up, get on your horses. We have to follow their tracks and, and find them in the wilderness. Is, is what powers a lot of that movie that's this whole setup with the the magnetic fields that you're talking about and and these no-fly zones paying off in that like okay star wars is getting back into its roots of of western movies of like well they went that way we're jumping on our our horses or in this case steelys and riding them down on foot it's less technologically advanced but Far more exciting
0: for me. Oh honestly. yeah. Like, especially with the the descriptions that we get in chapter twenty seven of, you know, kind of the, the moment drawing nearer. It's it really builds a lot of thrill and suspense here where, you know, I, I can literally like feel it when I'm reading, like, you know, he can sense them they're they're not as far away as they thought. So like there's this chance. And they gotta go. like you know, they, they can't rely on their speeder anymore. It's just like literally just hopping on the back of these steelies. And just riding—it's just a, a good old-fashioned chase. Uh, I love the suspense that's being built here. It's a fun read, and and I love that also. Bell is the one who is entrusted to kind of reach out with the force and sense there, because you know there's Porter, Angle, and Loden, Greatstorm—like two much more qualified Jedi. But like Bell is the one who is kind of, I guess, maybe more gifted at kind of sensing and and, and interpreting and and feeling the emotions around him. So, and that is how. The chapter ends with them hopping on the Steelies, connecting with the Force, kind of calming them like, hey, this is important. We need you to work with us. And, you know, kind of not. I, I also like that note that they're not like kind of dominating the Steelies. It's like reaching out with the Force very much how Obi-Wan did with the Varactyl and Master and Apprentice, kind of making that connection, meeting them where they are. Um, and working with the mount rather than how like the we'll find out the nihil are like they just don't know what they're doing uh, so
1: right and what we'll see is that that gives the jedi an advantage they can they can ride faster for longer because of this
0: yes exactly there's a a lot of like a lot of the setup kind of those small details with the magnetic fields there and this force connection it does pay off in their favor so next we do have chapter twenty six which is a change of scenery but still a good chapter nonetheless. But I think you are raising your hand, John. You've got another note to make before we move on to chapter six. Are there any other kind of closing thoughts that you've got?
1: I do. And I'm thinking about the, the Nihil symbol that was carved into the side of the house, which begs the question, what would your symbol be?
0: <laughs> um, I
1: can, can I give you, I've, I thought about this since I bothered to write down the question. Oh, definitely go um, go for it. <laughs> Mine would be a stencil outline of your face (laughs) to make everybody think that you did it, and then me and all my my gang and my crew, we would all wear masks of your face, (laughs) and we would be the Andrews, and we would be the scourge of the galaxy.
0: Why are you framing me like this?
1: I don't know, because I'm a criminal, and I don't want to get caught. Oh
0: my god, I do have to say, out of all of the ways that you could have answered what your symbol would have been, that was the last thing that I could have expected there. Also, I don't know if I should feel mildly disturbed or honored that there are a bunch of people that would be wearing my faces around the Honored. (laughs) I hope that it wouldn't... uh, I hope that you won't take any offense that my thought as to my symbol would not have been your face. But...
1: No, none. That's,
0: that's fine. Uh, that that was I, I was not excited that whatsoever. Um, I don't I don't know what my symbol would be. That's that's. Um...
1: I I was also thinking about would I do something ironic like a thumbs up okay. carved into the wall around this like wrecked house.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd maybe I'd etch like. Like a kind of like a dab, like oh, like you know, dab. Yeah, on oh, him. that would be you. That would be it.
1: It would be a, it would be a stick figure doing. A yes, tap. that's you. That would
0: be my symbol. I'm gonna rebrand Outer Rim Reads now too. That that would be the new logo is a stick oh figure God. dabbing in space. <laughs> so I can give my summary for chapter 26, and then we can talk about what happens on the medical frigate. Let's do it. Aboard the Republic Medical Frigate Panacea. Jedi Knight Nib Asek and her apprentice, Burriaga, prepare to greet the first survivors of the Legacy Run in the frigate's massive central room. Although Burri expresses discomfort at being involved in such an occasion, both Jedi do their duty and try to console the survivors. In the central chamber, Nib approaches one couple, while Burri tries to navigate the room, wary of the language barrier between himself and those around him. The young Jedi grows frustrated and discouraged when his efforts to comfort some survivors are not able to be understood. Upon retreating to the refreshments table, Burry notices a young boy in apparent emotional distress, unable to be soothed by a therapy droid. Burry approaches and comforts the boy, Serge Ukarian, and learns that Serge caught a glimpse of the bridge during the Legacy Run's final moments before being torn apart. I uh, will say we see Surge again, back from Chapter One. I was not expecting that whatsoever. I am glad that he is safe and well. I was just like as as if I lost someone who meant a lot to me, and that I see them again. I'm like, oh my god! Like I'm so glad to see Surge alive and well. The, you know, this- well,
1: at the rate that we were introduced to people and then made to care about them, and then have them taken away from us, the fact that the the ten year old kid made it is. Is nice. I'm glad
0: you know uh, I would not put it past Charles to if it was not the case but I'm glad that he has given us this this gift that Serge is alive and he's okay you know maybe not you know I mean there's a lot of emotional baggage now uh, you know seeing everyone die around him but he is at least alive and Bury will hug him which is great and wholesome but we will get there but um, this is a much different pace to chapter 25 but there are a lot of things that I also loved uh, and and was kind of drawn in by this chapter what were your kind of overall thoughts about 26 before we kind of walk through it
1: yeah well i i did want to quickly uh harp on the fact that this is this ship is named the panacea which um you know if you look up the definition of is sort of like a like a universal cure yep i'm like all right like that like nice one charles (laughs) like name your medical ship after universal cure if we built one now, would it be called the Vax, maybe? <laughs> um, but it was just, it just, it was like, yeah. I, sometimes with, with his wording and, and his naming of things, he is like a little too on the nose. Yep. But yes, as as this chapter works, like you said, very, very differently paced than 25 and 27. I like that it's between them, but still, again, serves the overall momentum of Jedi trying to understand what happened at the first emergence and, and in relation to that, trying to learn about and understand the Nihil. And we get some some good character work on Buryaga, who who gets the nickname Bury. So yeah, just a, a nice little breather of a chapter between 25 and 27 that works to serve much larger purposes. Yeah,
0: before jumping right back into the Elfrona chaos, but... You know, it still reminds us that, yes, there are are these answers that the Jedi are still seeking. It's not just, you know, you know, Avar and Elzar are finding answers to different questions, but also, you know, different Jedi are trying to solve different pieces to this puzzle. And as we find out with Surge, there is some crucial information to be revealed by talking to these survivors. So... We are in Burry's point of view, which is nice. Uh, you know, he and his master Nib are kind of in their formal attire. They are going to give some closure and to speak with these survivors, which is it's a nice gesture to make to to be present for them, especially since they were the first to be saved, and these Jedi, in particular, Nib and Burry, were directly involved in that uh, salvation. I thought it was really cool that you know when they do kind of walk into this high ceiling, I think it's described as like cathedral-like room. Under normal circumstances, kind of this this dome would be transparent, revealing what's outside of the ship, but the survivors had requested the ceiling to kind of reflect like a warm light, kind of calm green and blue tones with like sound effects of, you know, water running and kind of wind through leaves and all that. First of all, this reminded me of the Hogwarts Great Hall ceiling where it reflects the weather. It's like, you know, that's what I thought of there as far as like reflecting what's either outside or whatever the magic wills it to be. But this kind of what they requested was supposed to reflect what might have been on one of the planets that they set out to call their new home because they had been settlers going into the Outer Rim. And it's both a beautiful image, you know, kind of like just the description of kind of these tones and these sound effects and kind of this peaceful atmosphere, which is very starkly contrasted to the chaos and turmoil that they had been in literally just flying through space in that compartment of the legacy run. But it's also like very sad where it's, this is like a reminder of what could have been, but of what might never be for them um, now. So I don't know. I was just struck by that imagery there.
1: Yeah. And it's also kind of sad because... I don't think they want to look at outer space right now because of oh, what happened yeah. to the ship that they were on. That's what I like. When when I said or, or read that, um, normally it just looks right out into space, but the survivors had requested that maybe they don't. I took it as much more a reflection of of trauma of what happened to their last spaceship.
0: That is that is a fair point. I had not thought about that, where it's like, yeah, no, just close the, close the curtains. Yeah, I don't may- want to see that. Yeah, maybe
1: I don't want to look at the stars right now. You know, last time didn't go so well.
0: Last time, yeah. that is, we only saw stars and could have been killed in any second. Uh, that is very fair, because there's a, a lot of, as we see, there's a lot of trauma that they are dealing with uh, and probably will be have to deal with for some time. It's a very heartbreaking picture as, as well. And and I'm glad that, you know, we do see these moments where the Jedi are approaching them and, and Joss and Pika, Adrin, who are also involved in saving them, they're also there. So I'm glad that they're getting these comforts and just being able to talk and put a face to the people who literally save their lives.
1: Yeah, and and the trauma of an event like that isn't something that you normally see in a Star Wars movie. You know, I'm glad that the the book, even if it's just sort of for one chapter, in addition to continuing to propel our plot forward and give us some good character work on Bury, is also like just sort of taking a breather and a reflection of the after effects, the aftershocks uh, emotionally of what happened in the first 18 chapters is frankly, a kind of, kind of powerful and, and not, not the kind of thing that you would associate with, you know, the fun read that most of this book is, but I I think very worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I think it, it does, it goes a long way. And and you had mentioned like, this is not something that we would normally expect from Star Wars. You know, I feel like the, the tone that this book sets, it, it, obviously it's like very, it's much darker in a lot of ways than what we have experienced from Star Wars. And I do like kind of taking a chapter to touch on, those those points and those themes where it's like yeah you know they don't just get to walk away from this scot-free it's like they are still dealing with the emotions and and kind of like the inner turmoil and trauma of what they had to experience like in this great disaster and i like that kind of taking the time to unpack that and to and to see it and to give witness to it because it is a very kind of terrible thing to go through and and you know i feel like I, i think of and kind of like the superhero movies that we watch and all that, where it's like cities get destroyed and all that, you know, but like the, but the Jedi save the day, the the heroes save the day, but like, but what does everything that happened mean for the people on the ground, you know? And, and here we're seeing kind of like what that looks like for the people who had to endure, you know, the, the disaster, even if the day was saved, like there are still scars that will take some time to heal. So I I do like seeing this here and, and Charles kind of, uh, taking the time in this chapter to, to unearth that and to and to speak to it. We do find out, you know, you have, you've mentioned the emergencies uh, multiple times. You know, we do find out that they are still happening and that the Outer Rim worlds are still feeling the effects of the hyperspace closures. And to make matters worse, which like salt in the wounds from Charles, there was this orbital facility over Dantooine that was like coordinating this massive relief effort for the Outer Rim territories. We already know that those are sparse as it is. But this massive facility got destroyed by another emergence. So it's like, even the the sparse relief efforts that are able to go out to the outer rim, it's not looking too good for that situation. Which is just uh, some salt in the wounds from from Charles. As if we didn't have to be reminded of how bad things were just from from this chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, some of the stuff that you saw in those first few chapters is like the phrase "no good deed goes unpunished." times like 11 um, is like this. Hey, these emergencies, which are more or less random events, guess what? Like one wiped out somebody who was coordinating a relief effort uh, because that's just what Charles wants to do and wants to say is that is that no good deed goes unpunished and, and we're going to have to there's not going to be a simple fix to any of this. and And anything that would represent a fix is being wiped out in the chaos of it all
0: unfortunately that seems to be a running theme through here where you know even the help needs help
1: (laughs) it's almost become a running joke yeah i'm almost chuckling which is awful but i'm almost chuckling every time at this point it's it's almost comical how much it's happening it's It's to be expected just (laughs) give me a break
0: just stop <laughs> like you've made your point like and Charles like oh I'm gonna take this from you I'm gonna take this from you oh yeah that facility that's gonna help solve the situation I'm gonna take that from you yes psych it's just like oh you thought that was gonna work oh nope it's gone and it's just like oh. to, at this point it is to be expected it's just I don't know why I would have ever thought that it would have worked out because there are a few things that have worked out in this book just for the for the better but such is the life of light of the jedi under Charles so <laughs> Uh, I did think it was funny how uh, this was actually, you know, not not necessarily grim humor. This was I, th- I thought it was it was legitimately funny when Nib walked up to greet a couple, and she gives Burry the hand signal to quote advance into battle. That's like the the signal that she gives him because he does not want to be there. He's not really, as we gather, like not great with social situations. Also, because the language barrier, which is kind of heartbreaking as well for for him, but. I just thought it was funny how she knows how much he hates gatherings like this. So like, this is the equivalent to enter into battle. It's like, you know, I just I thought that was funny that that was the hand signal that uh, that she chose to use to uh, to advance into battle, because this is pretty much what is going on for him, which I thought was pretty great.
1: Yeah, no, that's that that's pretty humorous and also a very, very efficient way of developing his character. Um, because like you said, it, it is a language barrier situation, but it's also like, this guy's just a sweet little introvert. I mean, maybe not little. He's probably quite large, but he's just a sweet young introvert, you know? Yeah. An introvert or not, you know, you're in a situation like this. It's described as like, it was like a party, but it wasn't, you know, you don't want to be there. Your friend drags you someplace that you don't want to go. And then they're like, hey, get over here. I need you to talk to somebody like it's. I, I guess you, Burry. Yeah. I see you.
0: <laughs> there was a, a certain moment a little bit later on where I saw myself in him because, like, you know, I'm very much in Burry's shoes here. Uh, but I'll, I'll touch on that when we get to the specific line that I have in mind. He does note that um, Avar Chris had told them both to, you know, inquire, to ask around, to ask about, you know, the experiences of the, of the survivors to see if they can put any information together about the last moments of the legacy run. And he notes to himself multiple times in this chapter that no one would be able to understand him, even if he did ask, because there's no translator there. He speaks Shiriwook, the language of the Wookiees, which Nib, again, learned specifically to be able to take him as her apprentice, which is just, I love that. But I thought that was really odd that this is a massive medical frigate that's being sent on multiple missions into the outer rim territories to render this aid to be there for you know for everyone in you know the far reaches of the republic and you're telling me that there's not a single translator droid on this massive frigate like if they just expect everyone to know basic like it was that was baffling for me where it's like you're saying that there's not a single protocol droid translator droid on this entire ship like they thought that they would never run into that situation?
1: Or if you know that there's not any translator droids aboard because Burry's like, yeah, that's pretty standard, why would you send the guy who doesn't speak basic? It's just I don't to know. To gather information.
0: <laughs> it's, it's so wild. Like what, what what are they thinking? Like it's just what yeah. I don't
1: know. I mean, I think this sort of develops a little bit later, so maybe I'll hold on to my point. But I think they're is an answer that there's something there's something to bury that like transcends language about why you would want him in a situation like this but from a basic hey you know avar chris is coordinating things you guys go jump on this medical frigate you're going to have an event you know they'll be serving out some cocktails so people will be loose lips about the situation go see what you can learn why would you send the wookie who doesn't speak basic is 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 a pretty tough point. I just
0: don't know what was going through the minds of like whoever was stalking and the ship was like, Whoever doesn't
1: put a translator droid, strike one. Avar Chris, knowing that the standard is not to have translator droids, but send a guy who would need a translator, is strike two.
0: right. Yeah. I'm waiting for that third strike. (laughs) But we do find out, like you had hinted at a little bit later on, that. There is a wonderful purpose that Bury is able to serve um, when he encounters Surge. I did want to note, you know, he does walk up to a group of people initially, and, you know, they're able to convey their thanks to him. That's as far as they're able to kind of get in the conversation due to the language barrier. Joss and Pika Adrin, they walk up. They're relaxed. They've got drinks in their hands. Like, they're just kind of in their element, we quickly find out that Joss has, like, zero social awareness, saying things like, quote, this is Buriaga. He's the reason you're all alive. And, quote, we were getting ready to blast you guys into vapor. And, quote, it was close. I mean, close. One more second. And then, then Pika just drags him away. Like, what interaction? At some <laughs> point,
1: you, you got you to gotta cut this guy off. You got to stop serving him. He's had one too many G&Ts, and now he's, like, not just unearthing the trauma, but, like, ripping the scar tissue right open. Like, my guy, you can't do that. I don't know if it was, like, a lack of social skills because he's just, like, a pilot by trade and only has to really, like, you know, communicate with his co-pilot, who is his wife, which is very sweet. But, like, my man, that is no good. Like <laughs> Maybe he, the
0: drinks were playing a part. Could
1: just do some food and water and, and sit down for 20 minutes, my guy.
0: <laughs> he's just inhaling the drinks, apparently, and just... <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's just downing cocktails left and right, and, and saying all the wrong things.
0: He did not get the memo for what's supposed to be happening here. It's like we're supposed to console, and he's like, "Guys, we're about to destroy all of you." Like, just you should have seen it. Like, it's
1: just... <laughs> and I and I never missed. Like, you would have been gone.
0: <laughs> it's so bad. I was just like, I love you, Joss, but pick up. Just take take him away. Like. I, and this is we get to the moment here because Bury is able to kind of escape that situation. he re, He retreats to the refreshments. And although there's no meat there because, you know, he would prefer there to be meat, he does get some like cheese and fruit, you know, the standard like you know, we've all been at those, you know, uh, receptions where like that's that's the st- even in Star Wars. they got crackers, cheese fruit, like the basic stuff,
1: yeah. I mean, i was I was actually thinking about like, you know, my wedding a month ago, and like, oh, I gotta duck out of this situation to go get some of the spring rolls.
0: (laughs) And (laughs) those were great spring rolls.
1: (laughs) I was was relating to this chapter very acutely, but, like, not not in the ways that seem obvious.
0: I mean, I will say, like the next line here is what I saw myself in quote. If nothing else, a full mouth might mean no one would engage him in conversation. I was like, dude, Barry is me at parties. Like this, <laughs> if I just get enough food on my plate to keep just keep chewing,
1: <laughs> nobody will approach me as long as they see that I'm just downing these apps. Yeah,
0: uh, that that's the moment where I'm like, all right, this is me. <laughs> Just keep eating, and no one will talk to me. <laughs> but he does eventually notice this therapy droid kind of having no success comforting Surge. You know, we find out that he's Surge from chapter one again. It's just it's fantastic, and Burry ends up bringing him into an embrace. You know, he 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 does say things to Surge, but kind of knows that. Like, obviously, Serge doesn't speak Shuriwook, but he still, you know, reminds him multiple times, like, you did nothing wrong, like, and, but he eventually just brings him into a hug. Quote, He couldn't understand why anyone hadn't already done this. When someone was hurting, you did what you could to heal them. When someone was lost, you found them. And just my heart got so warm when I read that. Like, if there was ever a moment that Burry, like, to become the real MVP, it was it was then. Like, that is just the wholesome moment that it was just so refreshing in this book at large. You know, there haven't really been many wholesome moments, but, like, it warms the heart. And, you know, after all the struggles with, like, the language barriers in this chapter with, with Burry, to see him... Be able to make a difference for Serge to be there for him in a way that no one else had thought of, that no one else could. It was a, it was a wonderful moment. I really I love that, and it, it it moves you. It moves my heart.
1: Oh yeah, it was it was adorable and, and very touching. And I bet I bet Burry gives fantastic hugs. Like I I bet you though they're they're the best hugs in the entire Jedi Order. But a, a note that I made sort of to the point about him kind of noticing. Surge and then, um, some of those thoughts is, and and I'm thinking about generations of Jedi and masters and apprentices. And if Bell is sort of on a path to become either Loden Greatstorm or maybe a couple, or maybe even a a Porter Angle one day, you know, if if he's being surrounded by the people he might eventually kind of turn into, Bertie is on a path to be the next Avar Chris in terms of his empathetic abilities and, and how that's directly related to his force using abilities. Like thinking about during the the disaster scene, he was the one who sensed the people in the piece of the ship. And because of that, they started grabbing pieces of the ship out of the sky instead of just shooting them down, which feels like how Avar Chris kind of functions with the force. So that was just a little note that I made. And, and, and I was just sort of thinking of like generational stuff, cyclical stuff like that.
0: I like that a lot. I hadn't really kind of made that connection between how he interacts with like kind of his empathy on display in the same ways that Avar kind of uh, was, was able to display that kind of empathy in the initial chapters in the, in part one. I hadn't thought about that, like kind of likening his relationship with the force and his strengths like that to those of of Avar. That's a, a really great point. And I think it speaks a lot to Bury's potential in his character because uh, he, he can do great things. He just has to believe that he can. And and here he's able to do a great thing for Surge, um, who does begin to talk, you know, very kind of still distressed, but he does mention that he had kind of sliced into the bridge systems because he wanted to pull a prank on Captain Cassett, you know, by putting, like, a video on the bridge screens, you know, like, uh, it's a classic. And, you know, before he could... He saw something right before the bridge was ripped apart. And that's, like, that moment, like, I just kind of froze when I read. him. like, oh, what did he see? And, and, you know, we'll find out, you know, when the chapter ends what it was, you know, which I guess that's where things tr- uh, transition because Burry knows that, okay, my master needs to hear this. He brings Serge over to Nib, and, you know, he explains what Serge told him, and then Nib asks, you know, Serge what he saw. Quote, Lightning it looked like three strikes of lightning. And I'm just like, you know, we've seen the the symbol in chapter 25, like the lightning strikes, like the, the jagged lightning. I'm wondering, was that the the Nihil storm? Like, you know, is this related to what we saw in Abdallah where there's this massive like storm cloud and like shooting lightning and all that? You know, that's, that's where my thoughts went. You know, obviously the Nihil are connected here with kind of like the the strikes of lightning but i don't know that's how the chapter ends i'm wondering if the the storm has to do something with it but that was the kind of the reveal there what surge saw i don't know if you've got any thoughts it was just uh it was very chilling to be like oh wow okay this is what we're dealing with
1: yeah no absolutely that's exactly what i'm thinking i'm i'm thinking it was the nile and and we learned from some of the previous chapters that the eye of the Nihil, his special ability, which it turns out he actually takes from somebody else because he isn't shit. Um, <laughs> is no 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 say, say it to... say it
0: for the say it for the crowds. Mar- Mark Marquion Rowe isn't shit. Marquion
1: Ro ain't shit. <laughs> there it is. He's a fraud. He deserves everything that's coming to him.
0: Oh my god, I love it.
1: <laughs> Am I wrong?
0: Uh, I mean, there's just like, for just from what I've vaguely seen, there are so many people who absolutely love Marquion Row. I mean, maybe not like what he does, but like as a character. And just to hear you say Marquion oh. Roe ain't shit, like that's just.
1: <laughs> I mean, he's he's interesting. Yeah, he, he's, he's, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff to uh, to unpack with him, but he doesn't actually have any special abilities, but he claims that he does because that's the only way that he's still needed. Yeah, I mean, come on. And if we're talking about ticking time bombs, and I know this is getting away from our chapters, if we're talking about ticking time bombs all over the place, the source of those routes that he has exclusive access to is an old woman who's already lived way older than she should have. So if she dies, he's he's out of luck. (laughs)
0: He's he's nothing, you know? And I, I think just to that point briefly, like... Either it's that taking time, bum, or my prediction is that someone's gonna find out that he ain't shit, that he's taken that from someone else, and yeah. like you know that that reveal is going to be made. So, you know, I, I'm I'm with you there.
1: <laughs> if that's what comes to him, and and one of the three Nihil leaders betrays him because the source of the information is not him, then that's what he deserves.
0: Yeah, I mean, and also just the the way that he tortures uh yeah that's no good yeah i hope that he does get what he deserves um but yeah
1: i mean what he deserves is and this sucks and but if we're talking predictions is to torture her and have her die during the torture and then like well that's that you killed your own source of information so i mean that's that's my prediction yeah is that he uh he takes it too far one time which would you know be a little distressing to read but is exactly what he deserves
0: yeah, he does not deserve to succeed, and I don't think it's going to be that easy, but I do hope that he gets what's coming to him here. But we do see, based on what Surge saw, that the Night Hill were most definitely involved.
1: Where all that was going was that they have the ability to cut through the pre-existing hyperspace lanes and kind of make their own lane and jump across, almost like crossing a road that already exists. And so the... Object moving through space that caused the legacy run to swerve off its course. I think was a nihil ship jumping through.
0: That was a connection. Like, bear with me. Bear with me here. I I knew that they were involved. Obviously, like jagged lightning. Like, yeah, the nihil. I hadn't thought that. Okay, nothing's supposed to be there. But what if in their path that they find, they cut through an existing like that? It was. If it wasn't the gaze electric, it was just a, a Nihil ship going on one of their paths that mm. I
1: I think the legacy run thing was a complete accident. You know? It's it's almost like something someone running a red light and causing another car to swerve off the road. But it could've just been any other Nihil ship on their way to do whatever thing that they wanted to do, and I think the lightning just kind of travels with them.
0: My prediction this whole time had been like, oh, like well, maybe not this this whole time, but my prediction up until now. Was that? What if someone literally like placed something in the middle of this lane to cause havoc for whatever purposes? Like, but I think it makes a lot of sense where you're saying it was probably just coincidental. It was just It was an accident, you know. With the nihil doing, you know, hashtag nihil stuff. Like, I hadn't thought about that, but I and I wonder if. With what Bell and the rest of the Jedi see with like the symbol in chapter 25, like oh, there's this jagged lightning, if they kind of piece that together where they hear kind of uh, Nib and Burry's report where, yeah, this kid Serge said that he saw lightning, if they're able to piece that together and and find out that the Nihil have a way to disrupt the lanes or, uh, you know, cut through lanes or kind of do something to that. To that effect, wow.
1: That's we piece it together, right? Because the other of these little plot lines have been some of the Jedi talking to the people who administer hyperspace lanes, the Santecas who who first created them or whatever. I In that conversation, I don't think they said, oh, there is a way to chart your own course and skip from lane to lane to lane. But, you know, the Jedi looking into how hyperspace functions, number one, number two, discovering what, who the Nihil are, what they do, and the fact that their symbol is lightning. Number three, the legacy run, the last thing it saw was lightning zipping through hyperspace and an object there. And then the dramatic irony stuff of what we know about the Nihil from our chapters, both about, like you said, the, the raid of where the Nihil first showed up in the great storm and, and wiped out that series of ships at, at uh, Abdalas, and then what we've known from our couple of chapters with on Rowe. Like that's this is what I've pieced together, but that's another yet another ticking time bomb of we know stuff that our the Jedi don't know and eventually they've got to figure it out. So one of the things that's keeping me turning pages, or it will once we're done this and I'm allowed to go back and keep turning the page to chapter twenty eight, um, is when are they gonna figure it out? You know?
0: Yeah, we see the pieces forming on the puzzle board and it's a matter of like when the jet are able to kind of like reconvene and be like all right this is what we know this is what we know this is what we know like what does that all mean together and if that will be too late to stop whatever will be happening kind of in in act three or not but literally just piece that together for me on air that is wild because i i just knew like okay like it's got to be related to what we saw in abdallah's like the nihil are involved is that their storm and then you're just like it, you, you've, you've laid it out here for me and uh, that's wild and now I hope that it will be in time when the Jedi can piece together those bits of information and kind of put the puzzle together.
1: You want to know what would be awesome?
0: What would be awesome?
1: If I was wrong? If you
0: were <laughs> I mean, that's the, Oh,
1: that's the thing. <laughs> I'm so pumped. Like at the, When I finished reading 26, I'm like, I got it. I know what happened. And I'm assuming that it was coincidental, but even if it wasn't, I'm like, this is what I've pieced together. Like, what if there's some completely missing right now piece of information that makes me completely wrong.
0: This is what happens to us when we're in the same boat, is that we think we've got the answers right now. We're, ex- we're excited and pumped, like, this is what it means. And yeah, then... some,
1: some of your listeners might be like, oh my god, these idiots.
0: <laughs> but that is how chapter 26 ends. I can give my summary for chapter 27, and then we can jump back on to Elfrona with the Blythes. Sounds good. In a small convoy on Elfrona, the Blythes are being hurried away by the Nihil to their ship. Erika tries to comfort her children while under guard by a menacing Trandoshan Nihil member. Suddenly, Erika's son, Ron, quietly gets his mother's attention, signaling to her that there is something behind them. While Ron distracts the Trandoshan, Erika is able to get a brief glimpse into the distance behind the convoy and notices they have pursuers riding steelies as well. Upon trying to look a second time, the Trendosian notices Erika's efforts and begins to warn the other Nihil they are being chased. However, Autoblyth signals for the Steelies to come to a sudden halt, and the Nihil are thrown from their mounts, with the Trendosian dying in the process. The Nihil fighters regroup, deciding to set a trap for their pursuers while continuing their escape from the planet. I do like that this chapter went... Straight back to what is happening. This epic chase that we are now involved with on Elfrona, with you know the pursuers. We know they're the Jedi. And it's a matter of the the others finding out the same information that we know. Uh, this was a shorter chapter. I think you know we've been going for a little for a little while now. I think we'll just dive right into it because there's not really a lot that goes on. So you know we are you know back on Elfrona with the Blythes. They're in this cart that's being pulled away by the Nihil, and they're stolen steelies. From what we saw at the end of chapter twenty-five, with the Jedi making this Force connection with the Steelys, kind of becoming one with their mounts, Erica notices that the Nihil are riding slower than they might have been able to because they just they don't know how to properly ride the Steelys, which is good news for the Jedi riding after them. It was just it was comforting to see that okay, this is why they haven't gone as far as because they just don't know what they're doing.
1: And that immediately introduces the time bomb here. The time bomb is when the Jedi will arrive. It's a good thing we want it to happen, but. It not just explains how, you know, two chapters ago, Bell was like, oh, they're not as far away as I, I thought they would be. But for the purposes of this chapter, it introduces this chapter's time bomb, which is like the Jedi are further away and started later, but moving faster.
0: Yeah, this is, and it's kind of weird to think that there's a time bomb that we want to go off now, but that is that is yeah. where we're at here.
1: But but soon soon after that point, the tension is, can... The hostages stall their captors long enough for the Jedi to catch up? And also, can they stay alive long enough for the Jedi to catch up?
0: Yeah, because, you know, the members here are under orders to keep them alive uh, as we heard from when um, Lorna D proposed this mission to Marcion Rowe you know saying that it is pretty much an extraction they just go in get the people go out so we know that their their mission is to have them alive but that becomes a little bit more complicated with what happens with uh, with what Otto does down the line but you know I I do love this this moment from Ron Erica's son where you know he does signal to her that you know there's something behind them And then he distracts the Trandoshan guard by saying to his sister, quote, don't cry, B, this dumb lizard's not going to hurt you. And he gets a a kick from a Trandoshan, which is painful. But like Eric is able to sneak a look behind them with that distraction. But I don't know how old Ron is, maybe just like 12 or something, but he's got more guts than I would if I was in that situation, you know, calling out a Trandoshan. I literally
1: wrote down, I don't know what I would do in a situation like this. Would I try and provoke the guards as a way to maybe help stall or... If I knew that rescue was coming, would I just focus on staying alive and therefore not provoke the guards? I don't know. But yeah, r- big moves from Ron. Yeah,
0: Ron making big moves, big plays, you know, getting a kick from literally a Trandoshan, uh which again, ouch, but, you know, some real, some some bravery from Ron there. And, you know, Eric is able to see that there are Steelies that are in pursuit after them. So we know it's the Jedi. You know, she, she does make the mistake of looking back again. Uh, and that's when the trendocean starts to warn the other Nihil, like we're being followed. Then Otto, who was faking being unconscious, you know, after he got punched in the head after they had—that's
1: also a—that's uh, also a move that I would probably pull.
0: Getting punched in the head after capture, or
1: well, I mean, if we're being realistic, probably, but faking being unconscious and probably not to do something brave, but just like, oh, we don't have to worry about John over there; he's unconscious, <laughs> like. In a very self-serving way, I'd probably, like, you know, if you have the chance to just fake being unconscious, it's it's probably a good survival yeah.
0: move. <laughs> I mean, it was working up until then where it's like, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about him. He's just he's just laying there, so why not, you know? <laughs> Maybe same. Uh, but he does, you know, kind of give that signal to the Steelies. They come to a pretty much just an immediate stop uh, and the momentum of the Nihil throw. I think three of them go from their saddles and then the guard, the ocean guard, who is standing in the cart, Uh, Hard Luck goes flying, splits her skull open on one of the metal rocks there. Uh, still good riddance. Uh, You know, we don't like them for for what they're doing. Um, So I don't feel bad about that. Quick thinking by Otto for for doing that. I think the parents really come through here. Ron coming through as well. You know, the, the Blythes are doing much better than I would have expected. You know, being captured literally by one of the most menacing pirating groups in the galaxy. But the Nihil guards do regroup. They then, for real, knock auto unconscious. So uh, you know now he is knocked out cold. But they do hear. They are now able to hear the hoofbeats behind them, and that's when kind of the highest-ranking Nihil there sends two of them into the hills on either side, kind of setting this trap. And I, I just I'll read the end of this uh, this chapter, and then oh wait, are you are you stopping me?
1: You shouldn't zip past these guys' names. Oh, but yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about the Nihil. Number one, their name. Like, oh, what are we going to call the people who don't believe in anything but only believe in, you know, take, eat, plunder, and kill? Oh, those Nihilists? We'll call them the Nihil.
0: Oh. Um,
1: that's, that's, yeah. And then it's also, like, the strikes and the clouds are their rank. Like, don't talk to me. I'm a cloud and you're just a strike is like even dumber than like a boy scout rank um you know and then uh and then i i was also wondering if you know when you when you join the Nihil, do you get to choose your own name because if so why would you choose the name buggo
0: i <laughs> think did i totally there's somebody
1: that? named Loden great storm in this book <laughs> and then you got buggo
0: you can't like, compare <laughs>
1: Has Buggo just not been around very much? Is he just maybe a little a little simple-minded and is like, you know what? Day one, you're a strike now. You're going to work your way up and kill and take and eat and you'll enjoy your share of the plunder. Great. As part of your gang initiation, you get to choose a new name. I shall be Buggo.
0: Maybe not the sharpest knife in the drawer.
1: <laughs> maybe, yeah. You could have had it all. The <laughs> brightest crayon in the box. Yeah.
0: Could have been, yeah. I think I'm going to be Loden Great Storm. That's a good name. It's like, nah. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You just have Loden Greatstorm, (laughs) Buggo.
1: Yeah, and these two are about to meet. And and I seriously hope that (laughs) Buggo, like Loden, asked him at knife point, like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Buggo. And he goes, well, I'm Loden Greatstorm. And you suck.
0: Yeah, I I think the, the rank names as well, the clouds and the strikes, I'm like... You know, with like also, I don't think the Gaze electric is a good ship name. But Twitter democracy has voted against me this week. Uh, but I still don't think I, that the Nihil... I voted
1: in favor of you, the gays electric. You I voted that, I was, that it's a good
0: I'm... that it's a good name.
1: I did, yeah. Okay, it's awesome. All right, well, maybe maybe Mark Yon is really into like. David Bowie you know
0: maybe 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 that's it it's,
1: it's an it's an 80s glam rock kind of name
0: yeah that's that seems to be the common thread that is uh, mentioned about it but I think they could have named yeah, their I, ranks I think, a little I think bit the better
1: Nigel are a little too committed to their own bit of like well, yeah we can we can literally have lightning with our ships and we're also going to make lightning our signals and then we're also going to call sort of our rank and file soldiers like different parts of a storm
0: it's like, uh, like it's
1: maybe not. Maybe not You nice. could
0: have done anything and you, you just went with, you did, you're just holding they, they onto the bit for too long.
1: They and down onto their own bit, yeah.
0: And that's where it kind of runs dry a little bit. <laughs> uh, I do like the the end of the chapter where Erica is able to get a good look behind them now that their guard is out of the picture because they start moving again. Suddenly she saw, quote, three lines of light blossomed from the rioters coming up fast behind them one gold one blue one green and erica realized what was happening and who these people were by the light they're jedi and just uh, i do have to say i think this is pretty like not entirely you know 100 percent the portrayal of but this is like the special edition cover that i've got there where the the Jedi are riding it's that with image. their lightsabers. Oh, that's
1: good. Oh, you got Ember in there too. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Ember's here. The lighting is, is weird. But this is the image from the special edition cover. You know, I think in this one, uh, it looks like... Indira is also there, but we know that she is, uh, she's not currently with them. So, again, it might not be like 100% like this is the scene, but this is pretty much the depiction of what's happening, uh, riding on the steelies, lightsabers drawn, and... And so yeah. on the
1: back of the book, it's, I assume, some of the Nihil riding oh, at Oh, them. you didn't
0: see it in the light. Yes, the Nihil, yeah.
1: Buggo made the cover of the book. <laughs> I think he did.
0: I think he might have.
1: You know what? I take back everything I said. But I will say this, Bugo made the cover, and it looks like on Roe did not.
0: <laughs> he didn't even make the cover of the standard edition, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> Bugo could be on the special edition cover. This is it. <laughs> looks, like, right, there you go. looks like we I, were wrong, John. We were wrong about Buggo. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: I don't think we should get too attached to Buggo.
0: Uh, I, think he, I think he's going. I think he's gone. I think he might yeah, be I th- I toast. leaving sooner than we think uh, Porter, or, or in my case, also loaded might be. So I think Bugo's toast next time we, we arrive at this, uh, at the continuation of what's unfolding here. But that does leave us to the end of chapter 27. That brings us to an end of this episode. John, do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Or have we touched all the bases?
1: I have one last little thing to praise. And it's just before the moment when Erica looks back and sees the Jedi, which if you're thinking of a chapter ending, that's like an all time like, hell yeah, let's go chapter ending. But it's it's something and I didn't write it all the way down, but it was like Erica wanted to make sure that she lived long enough before the Nihil decided that like a seventy five percent profit margin would be fine after all. It's just kind of a very wry, slightly gallows humor but elevated wit type of sentence that is all over this book. I can't think of a word for that type of tone, but I love it. And it's all over this book, regardless of, of the events or which character we're even following. Um, so just sort of one more piece of praise for
0: Charles's writing. His style has become clear, you know, as the, the the further that we go into the book and, you know, it's cool that you're you know picking up on kind of those different moments there, different situations where that there's the through lines of, Humor, or just the different ways in which he he writes the chapters, uh, it, it's a, it's a nice touch there, and I think also just Erica is fantastic. Uh, just the way that she is taking, you know, she they, they were about to go for kind of like the finishing blow on on Otto, you know, after what he did, but she threw herself in front of him and took the hit instead, you know, she's there doing her best to kind of calm, make sure her children are calm and safe, and one of the previous chapters before they were captured, you know, commandeering the mining droids to attack the Nihil, she seems like a boss, and I only want great things for the Blythes, but also just for Erica Blythe, who is is the real MVP from their family so
1: maybe i should have my wife read this book after all and then sort of say like hey you know my expectation is that if we get taken by Bugo and the strikes that i lay there unconscious whether i'm just pretending or i'm actually unconscious and you really hold it down with our children and you distract the guards and then you take what would be a killing blow on me onto your own body that is my expectation
0: how do you think she would respond <laughs>
1: uh divorce i don't know <laughs> no no, no. <laughs> no I'm, it would end I'm all kidding. right
0: <laughs> it would have to end okay just like this will have to end okay with the Blythes because they're going to be saved by the, by the jedi it's going to be okay
1: oh no 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 i i think i think we're headed for good things here i mean i don't know about porter's chances um but i like the Blythe's chances in in this coming altercation i
0: will say On that note, I don't think if Porter is going to go, I don't think it would be when they go to save the Blythes here. They're up against, you know, I think they're they're up against Buggo. Yeah, I I do wonder what kind of like the the snipers on the hill will play there. I don't think I think it's just a matter of
1: he wouldn't lose in a straight up fight. But if the Nihil here are somehow able to, like you said, maybe with a sniper who remains hidden until it seems like everything's okay and then a very cheap pot shot takes him out, like with people like Bugo, they're going to have to pull some real BS if they're going to take out Porter. I don't think he'll be in too much more of the book.
0: Yeah, I do wonder as to how long certain characters will last because, you know, we're halfway through the, more than halfway through the season, more than halfway through the book now. So it is kind of, coming to that time where it's like, yeah, not a lot of people have kind of died since everyone was dying. So when's Charles going to kind of, uh, you know, rein things back in and start taking people from us again? But at least for now.
1: Yeah. And Avar Chris's hopes for love and retirement, no shot, Andrew.
0: I hope. I mean, but again, it might be a little bit too good to be true. I, If she does, I don't think that both she and Elzar will make it out to see that retirement together. I think one of them will... One of them will go. It's
1: it's it's him. Yeah, it's him. I think if if He's I gone. if
0: I were to pick, because I mean, well, then again, I, I can't say oh, Avar seems too central of a character because, you know, that's not a problem in in this book. You know, that it doesn't matter who's who's. And that's also yeah. a
1: strength of the writing is that there are no central characters, but there are so many interesting characters to maybe compare it a little to Master and Apprentice. That was a much more centralized story with like five characters who we would jump in and out of their different POVs. But this is a sprawling ensemble of a cast, and they're still able to both give us really, really interesting characters, but also kind of develop who they are, what they're good at, what they care about really efficiently. So another point to you, Charles.
0: Yeah, Charles is racking up the points. Uh, I think it is a very well-written book, very gripping It's got us hooked, uh, and now you can read to your heart's desires now that we have wrapped up, John. But, you know, this has been a great time, as always. I I love having you on the show, especially for uh, the the semi-centennial uh, episode of the show, episode 50. But, John, if the listeners, you know, If they loved what they heard from you today, if they want to hear more from you and see more of what you do, could you, you know, plug anything, any of your work that you'd like to tell them where they can find you uh, on the interwebs?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm at RhymersReels.com. I guess I'll clarify, I'm the only one at RhymersReels.com, but I write about movies. And so uh, we are just now entering award season. So I'm kicking off my coverage of that this week, which will culminate in, in Oscars night at the end of March. Uh, I've also been working my way through the IMDb Top 250. If you're looking to get more into into movies and you've heard about so many great ones and you're just like, well, where where do I start? I would point you to the IMDb Top 250 because that's ranked not by critics, but by real people. And then you can come check out my kind of companion piece to that, which is just a little a little blurb on each of those films. But I do uh, rankings and and more thorough analyses of single films. But the yeah, the two things I'm really working on right now are the IMDb top 250, as well as award season. And you can find me there as well as on Twitter. And I'm just rhymers reels.
0: Well, listeners, I will post the links to John's social media, his work in the episode description. My man, thank you so much for making this happen. As always, it's been a blast. Uh, I really had a great time, as always.
1: Yeah, me too, as always, Andrew. And congrats again on, on reaching episode number 50. It's, it's momentous.
0: Thank you, man. In lieu of a discussion question for this episode, I want to hear from you all now that we're two years into the show. What have your favorite moments been from the season so far? What has been most memorable for you in our journeys through Thrawn, Master and Apprentice, and now Light of the Jedi? I'll post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comment, and send your responses on any of those platforms, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod@gmail.com at gmail.com with the subject line, Outer Rim Anniversary. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com outerrimreads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, this episode was edited by Andrew Geha, and it is produced by Andrew Geha, as well as Simon Van Bakum. We will be back in two weeks with episode 51. Until then, sit back and enjoy. I'm gonna take one of these Veil Speeders for a run. I'll be back soon.